0: as I said, Tom's going to read to us the passage. We're going to be in Genesis 41, so please uh, do open your Bible if you have one.
1: After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered to Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And then the seven ears swallowed up the seven good ears, Sorry, the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven... For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God?
0: Well... About three weeks ago, we began uh, the series in the life of this man, Joseph, and it is truly a world-famous story. I, had, I read just yesterday that the uh, the musicals hit the theaters again. I've never seen it, not a recommendation or an endorsement in any way, shape, or form, not least because it's a musical, of all things. But anyway, um, why are we looking at the story of this man? And the reason that I've been trying to put across to you is that the life of Joseph, as much as it's about Joseph, is, is much more about God. It's about the sovereignty of God in the life of an individual, how God is directing his steps, guiding his ways. I think, for example, about what it says in Psalm 139, a psalm that is known to many of us and precious to many of us, where David says that you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He goes on to say, "You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is one of the great mysteries of scripture, that God is sovereign over the events of your life, interested in the days and moments, and he has a great plan. So when you're reading the life of a man like Joseph, one of the things that you're beginning to see and appreciate is how God works in our lives. And one thing that you see here, though, is that Joseph isn't, he's not, it's not like a a kind of belief in fatalism. Like he's not just a passive participant in his own story, almost like watching his own story from the outside in. He's a man who is very much responsive and engaged with the work of God in his life. Surrendering to God, obedient to God, pursuing God, believing in God, speaking for God, aware of God, conscious of God, in fear of God. All these things are true of Him. And this is one of the great mysteries of Scripture that you see this coming together of the sovereignty of God, that He has absolute supreme control over the details of our lives. But at the same time, you're not just like a leaf on the wind, passively being blown around, or like a feather on a stream, just kind of floating down wherever it's led. You have a duty and a response before God to understand what it is that he's calling from you and the ways in which he wants you to live. So the question that I want us to consider is how this man became such a prominent and impressive man of God in terms of the ways that God used him and the things that he accomplished in him. And what we've seen so far is that God found him as a, a kind of arrogant a uh, jumped up 17 year old boy who was very much full of himself having been his daddy's favorite all these the years prior to that and God puts him into his school of training he begins to suffer he begins to experience pain he begins to pass through trials and tests that form and shape him and here we are probably years later we don't know how much time has passed since he first was sold into slavery as a 17 year old but I'm guessing that this, a decade or more has passed in the life of this young man. And what emerges is a man prepared for the greatest task that God would put on his life. I can, you can think how this can happen. Just, you know, just less than, what, about 18 months ago, there were men around the world, men and women, I assume, around the world who had been preparing their whole lives for an eventuality that might or might not take place in their own lifetimes. And suddenly, obscure people became household names. Men like Christopher Witty, Valance, and Tegnal and Fauci, and all these people who we've been reading about in the news all around the world, who had been preparing in obscurity for decades, most of them, and then suddenly were brought into the light with prominence and influence, almost beyond imagination. And something like that's gone on in the life of Joseph. And I want you to particularly notice what it is that Pharaoh says about him as a kind of summary assessment of what it is he sees in the life of this lad. When that last verse we read, when he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? If you want to understand the development and the maturing, and the stature of Joseph, who now is impressing one of the most powerful men in the world, you have to understand the work of the Spirit of God in his life. Now, let me just briefly summarize what I understand about the work of the Spirit as it is in Scripture. This assessment of Joseph, that he's a man full of the Spirit of God, is something so rare in the Old Testament that only a few individuals separated by many hundreds of years are pointed out as being men full of the Spirit. You think about examples like Joshua, a man who's said to be full of the Spirit, or Samson, one of the judges, or Daniel, who lives his life out in Babylon. These individuals were described in Scripture as being men who are full of the Holy Spirit. And then we arrive in the New Testament, and when you get there, you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the man, the perfect man, But who doesn't live his life out of the power of his divinity being the Son of God, but rather lives in his humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit gifted to him. This is such an extraordinary, significant thing about the Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth. You think he's man, he's God, no wonder he lived the life he lived. One of the things the Gospels show us is that the reason why Christ was able to live such an extraordinary life exceptional character, exceptional power, exceptional influence, all these things, is because the Spirit of God fell upon him in extraordinary power, particularly his baptism. The Gospel of Luke records how the Spirit came down like a dove upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're told in the very next chapter of Luke's Gospel how the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was to be tempted. And then how the Spirit brought him back and how in the Spirit he stood up in the synagogue in his hometown at the beginning of his ministry, opened the scroll of Isaiah, and read out that portion from the book of Isaiah. Where it says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And so on. You want to understand the life of Jesus on earth? You cannot understand who he is and what he accomplishes apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in and through him. And then you get to the, new, the birth of the church in the book of Acts. This is so familiar to many of you, but I want to remind you of this because it's so critical to everything that we're seeing in Joseph's life. When the church is born, the Lord Jesus says, Wait. Wait for the gift of the Spirit. And then it takes place on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. And these are the crucial lines that Peter recites from the book of Joel. It says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Friend, this is what we're seeing happen in the, new, in the life of the church in the New Testament. This rare and exceptional gift that marked out specific individuals in the Old Testament stories, has now been sort of democratized and made available to all of God's people. And in a sense, you're not a Christian if you haven't received a measure of God's Spirit upon your life. This is the greatest privilege and birthright of the Christian. And it seems to me as well that as we go on reading the New Testament, not only is this a privilege and a birthright that we is ours by rights, but also that there are individuals who pursue greater experience and deepening of their intimacy with God through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God's Spirit breathed unto his people. So when you're living on this side of the cross, this side of the birth of the early church, and the reality of the Spirit on God's people. And you're looking back through history and through the lens of Christ and then back all the way to the story of this man, Joseph, and you're beginning to understand what it is that distinguished him. Friends, everything that marked his life as a man of the Spirit can mark your life, can be true of you. And so the question comes, what is it that Pharaoh saw in Joseph? What is it that, that struck him? and captivated him about this young man such that he was willing to entrust to him such immense responsibility as he does in the verses and the chapters that follow. And I want you to wrestle with this. What are the marks, in other words, of the Holy Spirit upon this guy that makes him so unique and so special? Let me show you a few things that occur in this story. The first is that Joseph has a supernatural and prophetic insight and ability he hears from God there's a sense in which he's a prophet in which he has this extraordinary supernatural ability to know what God is saying in the moment now clearly this is the most obvious and striking thing about the story that we read just now Pharaoh has had these two dreams, these dreams that have obviously left him with a deep sense, an ominous sense that something is about to happen that he must understand. He had the dream of these seven cows, plump cows, eaten by seven slim, thin, scrawny cows. He's seen the seven plump ears of grain consumed by the seven scrawny ears of grain. And he knows that it has meaning, that this is divine. The kind of symmetry of the dreams, the way that they are living in his mind and memory as he wakes up, he knows that this is a divine thing and has divine origin. And so he immediately sets about requesting that the magicians in Egypt interpret to him the dreams. And apparently this was an Egyptian thing. They understood that dreams had meaning. And he, he makes a request of all his wise men, none of whom are able to uh, interpret to him what these dreams mean. And then an official in his court, the cupbearer, a very powerful man in Egypt, has his memory jogged. He feels terrible because he's forgotten something so significant that had taken place in his life. Now, we didn't read this chapter, but chapter 40 is the story of Joseph in prison, which is where we left him last time. And you know when he's in prison, he's appointed to this position of leadership, and two political prisoners end up by his side in prison. One is the chief cupbearer, the other is the chief baker. Both of them have these strange dreams one night, the same night they wake up, just like Pharaoh, they're troubled, and they relay these dreams, and Joseph interprets them, and they, everything that he says comes true. The cupbearer is taken out of prison and reappointed to his role at Pharaoh's right hand. The baker is executed three days later, and Joseph just pleads with him, remember me. Two years have passed since then, and the cupbearer has forgotten about Joseph entirely. Until this moment, he knows a man who can interpret dreams, and so Pharaoh summons Joseph into his into his court, asks him what this ability is. I love Joseph's answer. How he says in verse sixteen, "It is not in me." God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He's saying this isn't a, this isn't a human thing. This is, it has divine origin. And then he begins to interpret to Pharaoh his dreams. This is what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years in which Egypt is going to be blessed in terms, of its, in terms of its fruitfulness as a land. There'll be plenty of food. And after that will come seven years of famine. Now, the question I want to ask with you as we're considering this gift and this extraordinary ability Joseph had is, well, is this something that you and I should expect as Christians, that we are in some way able to hear from God in the way that Joseph was? And I, I think the answer is kind of complicated. On the one hand, I want to say, well, not really. Because Joseph's story clearly was extraordinarily unique in the history of the world. And in fact, this ability to have and interpret dreams is not a common ability in Scripture. There's Joseph, there's Daniel. There are occasions, rare occasions when God speaks in dreams. It's not that common, to be honest. And it seems to me that when Christians say, okay, I want this, it's very rare that they also want the suffering that Joseph went through in order to be prepared for uh, the calling that was on his life. So I want you to understand just how unique he is, and that's something we just have to log in our minds. But at the same time, I also want to say, well, yes, this is the expectation that the New Testament has, for people who know Jesus. I'll just tell you a couple, very briefly. I mean, I, I can't deny this because I've seen this in my own life. I think about my dad. On, I can think of on two occasions, very distinct occasions, when God spoke to him in dreams for people in extraordinary ways. One was a couple that we knew who'd been barren for years. They were unable to conceive a child. And God spoke to dad through a dream, and told him the month that they were going to have a baby, the next year. And he told them, which is a risky thing to do, and it happened. May of next year, they had a baby. On another occasion, he had formed a friendship with a soldier in the city in which we lived. who was a married man, lived in a house not so far away from us, and had kids. And the kids went to school with me and my younger brother. Dad had a dream one night that this man was committing adultery, he arranged to see him, sat in front of him, told him what God had said to him through a dream. The man went white as a sheet and confessed what was going on. Unfortunately, it didn't lead to him abandoning that path and turning to God. He wandered off, but he wandered off knowing that God was on his case and interested in his situation. And I want you to think for with me for a second. Look, I know Joseph is rare, unique, weird, special in the story of Scripture. I read to you earlier what Peter says on the day of Pentecost when he describes the gift of the Spirit being given to God's people. How it, that scripture that is relayed to us in Acts chapter 2 where he says that in the last days the God will pour out His Spirit. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I'm not sure. You ask yourself, well, what is the heart of this New Testament promise? I don't think it necessarily means that we all hear from God in precisely the same ways. But what it does mean, what it has to mean, is that the gift of the Spirit given to God's people is given for the purpose that you can know God in an intimate way in the sense that you are conscious of His voice in your life in one way, shape, or form. I think that's the essence of the Scripture I read at the start of the service, that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God and cries, Abba, Father. Somebody who is a Christian, in other words, doesn't merely know about God from a distance in a theoretical and theological sense. They they ought to know him in that way. But it's more than that. To be a Christian is to enter into an experience of knowing God personally in which you are aware of the Father's voice in your life. The intimacy of your great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think, as I said, that that means that God speaks in exactly the same ways to all of us. But what it does mean is that to be a child of God is to know the voice of God. Here are some of the ways that God speaks to to his people, as it's told to us in the New Testament. One of them is through preaching. I don't pretend that this has anything to do with me specifically in any unique way, but when I get up to preach and open up the word of God, the spirit of God begins to speak in the hearts of his people. This is a phenomenon that happens in churches everywhere. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, when Paul writes to the Christians there, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You heard preaching, in other words, and you knew God was speaking to you, and you received it like that. Another way is in guidance, in Acts chapter 16, Paul's on a missionary journey. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I don't know exactly how God spoke to Paul on that particular occasion, but the Spirit of God forbade him from doing something that he'd intended to do. I think there should be an expectation of the Christian life, that when you're walking in submission to God and you're wanting to follow his leading, the Spirit of God is his role to communicate to you the will of God. We needn't be anxious about that. He can stop us from following a terrible course of action. The problem is whether we're really listening or not, right? Then you see in the New Testament dreams and visions. You do in the same chapter, in Acts chapter 16. Immediately after that moment where Paul's been forbidden from traveling somewhere and God's guidance has been made clear in his life, it says a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is gripped by this vision of a Macedonian man, presumably recognizing him by distinct dress or whatever that he was wearing. And the guy is inviting him, please come and preach to us. And he does so. He travels to Macedonia, he preaches in Philippi. He plants the church there and elsewhere. And the Spirit of God works. Amazing things begin to happen. I think also about... The power of reflecting and meditating upon the word of God. Let me read to you a verse in, in Philippians that, where this is made clear. Paul's just explained to them loads of doctrine. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And what he's describing there is the Spirit's work in illumination, which is where you read the Bible And are conscious that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to things that you've never seen before so that your understanding is opened up. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I've written these things to you. If you think on them, meditate upon them, the Holy Spirit will begin to open your eyes. The theologians call this illumination. I love that word. It's like you're reading in the dark and then someone switches a lamp on and it comes alive in your understanding. And you see something you never saw before. Don't expect to ever experience this if you do not read and study the scriptures. But I think this is the primary way that God speaks to his children. Another example is in the conscience, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, where the writer is talking to the Hebrew Christians about uh, the, the Word of God working in their lives. He says this in Hebrews 4, verse 12. Let me just quickly find the verse. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What he's describing there is the way in which the Bible has a unique power To not just inform you, but to cut to your very heart what he describes as the division between joints and marrow. In other words, right into the bones of your being and to your very conscience. God can speak to you in ways that nothing else can impact your life, in other words. Now, I, I, I say all this because, friends, the point is this. Joseph is a spirit-filled man, and the spirit-filled life, as it's shown to us in Scripture, is a life in which we, you, are attentive to the voice of God. The worst thing that a Christian can do, and, and I would say someone who is not a Christian, is to want to silence the voice of God. God is drawing you, perhaps, to himself for the first time. Or he's leading you, or he's convicting you of a particular sin in your life. He's directing your path, or he's calling you to some great calling. Or he's speaking to you to prompt you to go and speak to someone else. All these things happen in scripture. What do you do? The spirit-filled person, as we've seen in the life of Joseph, is somebody who, who hears from God. Are you aware of a living relationship with God in which he speaks to you like this? Now, let me show you a second thing that's true of him. He also has a supernatural and spirit-empowered boldness and clarity and conviction to speak for God. It's not just that he hears what God is saying, but that Joseph is empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak as God leads and commands him. Now, before, before we get into the passage, I'll show you where I think that's happening here. I want you to be very aware that this is very clearly and very definitely a mark of the Holy Spirit on his church in the New Testament. You think, as I've been telling you about Jesus promising his, his disciples that the gift of the Holy Spirit will come upon them. What does he say to them in Acts chapter 1? He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit upon them is not merely for their personal fulfillment or in a sense of intimacy, though it does involve all of those things, knowing God, but also power that you would then speak for God. And this is something, this is one of the patterns that you see all through the New Testament. That when the Holy Spirit is on individuals and on his people as the body, as the church, God's people become vocal. They're so emboldened. God puts backbone into them and courage into them and conviction into them that they know that we're not here to remain silent. We are here to speak. I think there's so many examples, it's almost like difficult to choose which ones we should relay here. But I, one of my favorite examples is the one of Peter and John, Acts chapter 4. How they are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, religious authority. And they're told and very explicitly not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But on that particular occasion, when they're dragged before these men... One of the things that you observe in the life of Peter there is that the Holy Spirit comes upon him in an extraordinary way. It says this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he begins to push back, rulers of the people, he says, and elders. And they are so taken aback by the courage and boldness and clarity with which he speaks, because it's the Holy Spirit upon him, that they are they begin, to, they begin to observe this. They say, it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And of course, it's not only true that they had been with Jesus. He'd taken them from this unlikely background of being fishermen and tradesmen and all these different backgrounds to becoming his chief spokesmen but also that the gift of the Spirit was upon them. The Holy Spirit was in them, and they could not escape the responsibility, the burden, the passion to speak for Christ. You see the same thing in the life of Stephen. What a story that man has. He's one of the first deacons in the life of the church, selected to oversee the distribution of material help to the widows who had no other form of income. But he's also, as a kind of side act, an amazing preacher. And one of the things he does is he kind of engages in debate in the public sphere in a kind of apologetics and proving that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose from the dead. And it tells us that Stephen, full of grace and power, in other words, the Holy Spirit upon him, was doing great wonders and signs. And it says also, That when people were engaging with him, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. My friends, this is such a a prominent theme in the book of Acts that we literally could spend the next three hours just exploring this. None of you would thank me for that, but we could. But it's there not only in the lives of individuals like Peter and Stephen, but it's also there for the whole church. Just after Peter and John have been told, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus, what do they do? They convene a prayer meeting. And when they're praying, they ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. For what? For boldness, it says, to continue to speak the word of God. It seems to me that there is this total connection, this absolute connection, therefore, between the gift of the Spirit upon God's people and you, seeing things and understanding things and feeling a responsibility and a power to speak what God wants you to speak, whether it's inside or outside of the church. In other words, you become one of God's spokespeople. Now, this is something evidently true in the life of Joseph. Here he is, called before this man, Pharaoh, who is almost without doubt, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And also a man who is king over a nation that worships all kinds of weird and bizarre gods. And God Osiris, the god of the underworld, married to Isis, who is also a god of the underworld and of the dead. And they have a child, Horus, who looks like a falcon, you'll recognize from any Egyptian mythology. There's the ray, the sun god. There's a whole list of deities and in among them is Pharaoh himself, who was considered to be a kind of incarnation of these deities, considered to be a god. Now this is an extraordinary thing, because here's Joseph, this slave, dragged before a man who is considered to be a god, and asked to speak. And you might have thought that he would tread carefully in this in this opportunity, that he might be nervous about... What could happen to him if he speaks on behalf of the God he worships who is a foreign deity to Pharaoh? It seems to me that his, his calling therefore in, in a way is an analog or has a lot of similarity with the Christian's position in the world, right? You may be before all kinds of people in your life but one thing that's in common is that the world in which we live worships other gods and has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and God's people are called to be those who confront who bear testimony who speak truth and look how he does it i love i love the way he speaks to pharaoh without hesitation it's from verse 25 how it tells us. He says to him, "The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do." Well, think about that statement and what follows it. First of all, that he is asserting, assuming really, the existence of the God he worships over against the gods that Pharaoh worships. That is an extraordinary thing in and of itself that he is willing to boldly confront that man and not sort of pretend that he's a, a worshiper of Egyptian gods or anything of the kind. In a sense, that's exactly what the Christian is called to do, right? You're here, and one of the reasons why you're here, one of the reasons why God leaves us on this earth, is that you will speak for God. Speak from the position of confidence and assurance and certainty that you know the God who made you. That he has a message that needs to be heard in this world. That's Joseph's position. That's why God put him there. God had a message for Pharaoh and he wanted to use his child, his son, this man, Joseph, to communicate it and relay it to it. What about that is not true of you as a Christian? And not only does he assert and assume the existence of the God he speaks for, but he goes way beyond that in establishing and, and, and expressing a belief in the God who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, who is over all things, including over Pharaoh himself. And you see this in the tenor and tone of the way that Joseph speaks to Pharaoh. He says to him, he speaks to him about a God who, is, who knows the future, these next 14 years, and how these things will, will unfold. Who is in control of the elements and who has a plan. In other words, the weather bows to God's authority and sovereignty. And then he he sums it all up, lest Pharaoh's thinking about how he's going to get around this problem. He sums it up and just says this, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Can you see Joseph does not, he does not worship a small God. And he's not apologetic or defensive, or embarrassed to speak for God in that moment. He has such an enlarged vision of the sovereignty and supremacy of the God that he loves and worships, over against Pharaoh himself and the gods that Pharaoh represents, that he is willing to get in Pharaoh's face in a courteous and genteel way, but get in his face nonetheless, and tell him the truth. It seems to me this is precisely God's desire for his people and the reason for which he has given you his spirit. The spirit of God lives on us and in us because we know something to be true. Because we know what God plans to do because we know what God wants to be said to the world in view of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Everything, therefore, that's true of Joseph in this moment as a spiritful man must and ought to be true of us as God's people. That he hears from God. That he then speaks for God. There is one more aspect of this spirit-filled life that emerges in this chapter, which has to do with his extraordinary and supernatural wisdom and intelligence and gifting from God to be the man that God for the job. But I want to leave that aside and, and speak to you about that next time when we pick up this story on the way in which Pharaoh responds to Joseph there and then. Friends, let me just bring this to you close and remind you of this fact Joseph reminds us of our saviour Jesus at every turn in his life doesn't he? The one who suffered on behalf of his brothers, the one who was buried as it were in Egypt and resurrected, the one who who is raised up to be a saviour of the nations and this is true also in the resonances between Joseph and Jesus as a spirit filled man the one who hears from God. Jesus is the great prophet. The one who speaks for God. Jesus is the great spokesperson. Whose boldness and authority in preaching and teaching. Was marked his life. The one who brought authority. And wisdom to govern and rule the nations. Just as Joseph will now ascend to that level of authority. And friend I want to leave you with this last thought. That being people of the Spirit, people who are called to be inhabited by the Spirit of God, has to always begin and end with surrender and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are more or less, in other words, a person clothed with and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the degree to which you are living a life that is centered upon and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph reminds us of of Christ, doesn't he? Of Jesus. And as we, maybe there's been some way in which the marks that we see on Joseph's life have resonated with you. And you think, I want to be that kind of a person. I want God to use me in these sorts of ways. Friend, I want us to come back to Jesus now. And remember that he is the giver of gifts and of life and of power. He's the one who wants to take hold of your life. It's obsession with him that drives and empowers and is a dynamo within the Christian life. And he's the one who pours out the spirit into us. Why don't we bow our heads and pray. Father God, in coming to you now, We're conscious of that yawning gap there seems to be between the might and the power that you have and that you want to display in your people and the smallness and the weakness by which we so often live the Christian life. There's longing and aspiration within us, Lord. We recognize that there are Ways that we can walk. The things that we can do in and by the power of God that might otherwise be unimaginable. Hmm. I want to pray now, Lord, that as we respond to you in worship, Lord, that you will awaken within us as a church and within the lives of individuals here. A deep longing to live a spirit-filled life. And to walk and live by the power of that Spirit. I pray, Lord, that where we may have been wading in the shallows, as it were, content with a Christian life that is somewhat routine and absent of real living moment-by-moment relationship with you, I pray, Father, that the light of your presence and your invitation to come nearer will be heard by all of us. So the brothers and sisters here, Lord, will not continue in a dreary approach to faith, but rather will be enlivened by the reality that you are real and you're intimate and you're with us, Lord. I pray for more of your spirit, in other words, Lord. I pray you'll begin to speak and to lead. I pray, Lord, that you'll open the scriptures to us as we study your word. I pray, Lord, that we'll know something of the Holy Spirit moment by moment in every day, leading and guiding, communing with our spirits. I pray, Lord, that we'll know more of the courage that comes as being spirit-filled people. And, Lord, that you will awaken, even here, Lord, individuals who will become unstoppable, courageous, bold and unstoppable no longer cowed by the intimidation around us no longer afraid of the consequences but willing to be truth bearers i pray these things in jesus precious name amen friends why don't you stand with me and let's respond to god in worship let's draw near let's ask him for a greater measure of his grace upon our lives. Amen.